Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. You come down from the house through the lower field, enter the forest, and the first one that you see is the plaque for Sojourner Truth. And we go over and we visit Susan B. Anthony, who is obviously the mother of us all in terms of suffrage history. Ida Wells Barnett got a really nice tree. I I really wanted to single her out because she's such an important African-American suffragist. And then the final plaque is Sue Shelton White, who was very involved in the ratification fight in Tennessee. Hey, Lynn. This is not how we thought we'd be celebrating the suffrage centennial. (laughs) I know. We expected hats and horns, a giant sheet cake, a huge gathering of women and men cheering the anniversary of our right to vote. Instead, we're on a virtual tour through a suffrage forest in New Hampshire. And happily so. Our guide is Harvard historian Susan Ware, whose stately tribute to our foremothers and one forefather traces a path through suffrage history. She's dedicated 19 trees in the woods behind her house to her favorite players in the fight for the 19th Amendment and labeled them chronologically. The link between these pioneering feminists and their tall namesakes is inspiring. I just love this metaphor of these individual trees, you know, standing up, these individual women taking their stands, and yet they're stronger when they're part of a forest. And then you look up and here it is, it's the summer, it's bright blue sky, the, the sun is dappling through, and it's, it's just magical. But I love standing here. I mean, I think this is the, in some ways the best spot because you see, you can really see five of the, of the plaques. Susan's deep respect for the individuals whose lives she's documented and for this very personal monument she created is palpable. I, but I, I do have the sense also of them somehow talking together. The way trees sway, you know, like on a really windy day, they're closer, farther apart. The roots are all interconnected. You know, there's, there's a synergy that's going on. And for many of these women, their stories don't end in 1920. They continue on. That's what this final episode is about. What happened after August 1920 when the vote was won? What became of the great expectations of three generations of suffragists and of the suffragists themselves? I'm Ellen Goodman. I'm Lynn Schur, and this is She Votes, a podcast about our battle for the ballot. With the suffrage amendment ratified, a cartoon by Nina Allender of the National Woman's Party 
captured the mood and the exhaustion of many activists. Susan Ware. And it's a picture of a suffragist lying in bed with rumpled covers and newspapers all around. And the caption is something like, a good suffragist the morning after. She was sleeping in after seven decades of tireless struggle. By one reckoning, it took 834 suffrage campaigns to convince states and parties, 19 successive Congresses. While they no longer had a single goal around which to coalesce, many suffrage leaders awakened to the new reality and took on other reform causes with renewed energy. Carrie Chapman Catt, who led the final triumph in Tennessee, became a peace activist, founding the Committee on the Cause and Cure of War. Mary Church Terrell broadened her role in the movement for civil rights. Alice Paul, who'd engineered the suffrage spectacles and who'd endured tortuous days in jail while being force-fed, proposed the Equal Rights Amendment, still not in place today. The National American Woman Suffrage Association, which in one form or another had led the fight for more than half a century, morphed into the League of Women Voters to teach the newly enfranchised how to use their precious new right. And some suffragists started climbing the ladder of party politics, one rung at a time. They were no longer a giant force, but in this era of more frivolous flappers, the suffragists started seeding the next wave. They're there to stay. They felt they had a place in politics and public life. The vote was something they needed to claim that place. And then they were just going to keep going forward. I think they just saw it as we finished this fight and now let's let's roll up our sleeves and see what's next. First up, the presidential election that November. It took some getting used to for both the first-time female voters and for male veterans. Ellen, I loved reading about men's reactions when the polling places in New York City moved from barbershops and smoke-filled saloons to more female-friendly schools and firehouses. No alcohol or cigars, chatty moms invading their man caves. <laughs> One policeman grumbled to a reporter, since the women's been mixing in, politics ain't the same. The big question, of course, was how those women, 27 million newly eligible voters, would vote. Would they vote at all? In fact, only some 9 million women, just over one-third, voted in 1920, compared to nearly twice as many men. People are often kind of appalled. It's like, you mean... They spent 72 years fighting for this and only a third of American women could bother to get themselves registered and go to the polls. But I think what we need to remember is that voting is a learned behavior and you have to learn how to be a citizen. You have to know to register to vote. You, it has to become part of your sense of yourself as a citizen. And that doesn't happen overnight. And that, of course, is one reason why the League of Women Voters was so important in training women to be citizens. The president they helped elect in 1920, Republican Warren G. Harding, would go down in flaming scandals. But these women were the lucky ones. They got to vote. This was not the case for many other American women that year, despite the revolutionary mandate of the 19th Amendment. 
Native Americans and Chinese Americans were still kept from the polls, still not considered citizens. English-only ballots and whites-only primaries shut out much of the Latino community. Gaining their voting rights would take longer. But by far the largest constituency unserved by the 19th Amendment were African-American women in the South. Millions were deliberately barred from voting by new local laws. And the reason they couldn't vote was because they were subject to precisely the same restrictions that had been put in place in the late 19th century, what we call Jim Crow, to keep African-American men from voting. And, and so even though technically they had the right to vote, actually African-American men technically had the right to vote from the 14th and 15th Amendment, but it was a hollow victory. There are people who say the 19th Amendment only gave the vote to white women. Is that a fair statement? No, it's not a fair statement because uh, there were African-American women who did not live in the South who were enfranchised. Some of them were already enfranchised. Uh, Illinois women got presidential suffrage in 1913. So there already were Black women voting. New York City had a very vibrant African-American community that it was involved in politics, mainly the, the Republican Party. There were, in fact, some intrepid African-American women in the South who managed to get themselves registered. They would, it was all very much on a, you know, a local basis. What we find is, and what we always have to remember, is that voting is really, it's determined on the state and local level. To give you an idea of the bias, Arkansas, Georgia, Mississippi, and South Carolina all ruled that if you didn't register six months before the election, you couldn't vote. But Lynn, the 19th Amendment only passed three months earlier. Black women, like black men, were specifically and viciously targeted in the South. As the Chicago Defender wrote, they faced murder, kidnapping, lynching, and threats of arson. In Virginia, only 12.5% of eligible black women managed to register. It would take another 45 years for the federal government to ban these racist barriers. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 finally offered real enfranchisement to all African Americans. And even that is now under attack again. But the need for that legislation highlighted the ongoing struggle for civil liberties and the intimate connection of both race and gender in the battle for the ballot. You've got to begin with a constitution that said that Blacks were not human, that Native Americans were invisible, and that women were to be silent. The first moment of redemption came in the guise of the 15th Amendment in 1870, when blacks were black men let's be clear black men were given the right to vote stacy abrams runs fair fight 2020 an organization building teams within democratic groups across the country to protect the right to vote she says voter suppression takes many forms and the 19th amendment just like the 15th was incomplete it wasn't until the voting rights act that my grandmother a black woman could legitimately believe that that right included her. Because despite the Constitution, this framework that guides us, despite the Constitution's admonition that race 
and sex were not to preclude her participation, it took another law to make it real. But even when her grandmother finally had full legal rights to vote, she was too terrified to go to the polls. And it took my grandfather to get her to stand up. But not everyone has that capacity and not everyone has that strength. When you've spent your entire life not simply being told no, but being chastened and threatened and punished for the audacity of hope, you learn not to hope anymore. You learn not to believe that more is possible. And that's what my grandmother felt. This weight of impossibility. She knew that her son, my father, got arrested at the age of 14 for trying to register black people to vote. And so her, the most logical outcome for her was to deny the possibility because the possibility was frightening. The possibility had never been real on paper or in practice. And so one of the ways voter suppression is so insidious is that it, you know, it relies on the evidence of our eyes. That when you know that it, when you've been discouraged from voting, when you've been prevented from voting, you believe that you can't vote. You can follow the line, says Stacy, from anti-suffrage hostility in the 19th century through the Jim Crow laws whose memory terrorized her grandmother to today's voter suppression, despite amendments and laws banning discrimination. The best way to prevent or discourage is to criminalize. That's why Susan B. Anthony was branded a felon, because it, it wasn't just about what, she, what was done to her. It was the signal sent to anyone else. Because as we know, I mean, this is the intersection of, of what happened to her with today's conversation about criminal justice reform. When you are criminalized in the United States, it not only strips you of your freedom, it also strips you of access to many of the perquisites of humanity. You, you, you still have to pay your taxes, but you can't participate in elections in most states. How is that battle for the ballot going today? We are in the midst of this battle, but victory is in sight. However, we can't get there if we don't know what we're fighting against. And that's why it's so critical that we understand the architecture of voter suppression in the 21st century. It's, can you register and stay on the rolls? Can you cast a ballot and does your ballot get counted? And so I would say the glass is half full. It's just probably poisoned. Stacy says the half-empty part is the reduction in number of polling places, threats to mail-in ballots, sneaky manipulation of registration rules to make it harder to register and easier to be dropped from the rolls. Who's, who's the bad guy here? The bad guy in the 21st century is the Republican Party. Throw some bedding on a bunch of different mattresses and yeah, sure, they all look alike. Same goes for the pillows. But peel away the layers, look at what's inside, and you're going to see they're not all created equal. That's what makes every purple pillow and mattress unlike anything you've ever slept on. The purple grid sets the purple mattress apart from every other mattress. It's a patented comfort technology that instantly adapts to your body's natural shape and sleep style. With more than 1,800 open-air channels designed to neutralize body heat, Purple provides a cooling effect other mattresses can't replicate. 
And this cutting edge technology doesn't stop with the mattresses. Every purple pillow is engineered with a grid for total head and neck support and absolute airflow. So you're always on the cool side of the pillow. Purple's proprietary technology has been innovating comfort for more than 15 years. And you know, Ellen, they sent us these adorable little samples, little tiny squishy grid-like things in my favorite color. Yeah, Lynn, I mean, purple, that's you. <laughs> that's your favorite color. You're bound to have a purple mattress. But it really does feel good, at least in my hand, you know? Very cool, very cool indeed. You can try every Purple product risk-free with free shipping and returns. And Purple has financing available as low as 0% APR for qualified customers. Experience the Purple Grid and you're going to sleep like never before. Go to purple.com shevotes10 and use promo code shevotes10. For a limited time, you'll get 10% off any order of $200 or more. That's purple.com shevotes10, promo code she votes 10 for 10% off any order of $200 or more. Terms apply. In the 100 years since the 19th Amendment enabled women's voting rights, the presence of women at the voting booth has mushroomed. In 2016, the last presidential election, nearly 74 million women voted, 10 million more of us than men. We also turned out in a higher proportion, 63% of eligible women versus 59% of men. Debbie Walsh runs the Center for American Women and Politics at Rutgers University. She says women vote at a higher rate because they seem to have a different engagement with government than men. For the same reason, starting in 1980, women began to vote differently from men. And I think it's because they see themselves more likely to need government than men do. You know, women make less money than men. They have less money saved for retirement. They see themselves as more employment insecure. And so that social safety net that government provides, whether it's Social Security or Medicare, Medicaid, unemployment insurance, all of these aspects of the social safety net are things that women imagine themselves needing at some point in their lives. Are you only talking about progressive women? What about conservative women? Well, I think women overall feel this, but when we start to talk about the difference in the way women and men vote, that falls down far more along party lines. Women are more likely than male voters to support Democratic candidates. That's what we call the gender gap. In fact, we've never seen a case at the presidential level where there's been a gender gap that has benefited the Republican Party. You know, Lynn, it's really notable and odd that this has turned into a partisan fight. The second wave of the women's movement, when you and I were covering politics, included a dedicated group of feminists in the Republican Party. They believed in women's rights and reproductive rights and even the Equal Rights Amendment. Those forward-thinking women seem to have been driven out of the party today or forced to swallow their beliefs. Too bad. Republican women were also among the first female candidates for public office in the face of incredible but predictable resistance. Lynn, 
What happened to petticoat rule? Wasn't woman suffrage supposed to bring that on? Even today, only 23% of the House is female, 26% of the Senate. Yeah, I think petticoat rule went the way of actual petticoats. No need for frilly undergarments with blue jeans. In fact, the struggle went from getting women the right to vote to getting Americans to vote for women and getting women to run for office. Debbie Walsh has tracked women's path to leadership in the face of tremendous resistance. This was not what was considered acceptable behavior for women. Women weren't welcomed into the public square as elected officials. This was something that they had to fight against a lot of the stereotypes and traditional expectations for women's roles in order to run for office. So it is a slow process. The glacial pace of change um, that, that has been the story for women as office holders. I think there are the stereotypes of who can lead, what does leadership look like? It looks like a white man. And the status quo is hard to change. People don't give up power willingly um, or, and easily. So the arguments that were used against women right. voting have still are still being used against voting for women. I think that's right. Of course, Lynn, the presence of Senator Kamala Harris on the Democratic ticket with Joe Biden has already started to challenge those assumptions. And look how she started out by recognizing our foremothers and beyond. And Joe, I'm so proud to stand with you. And I do so mindful of all the heroic and ambitious women before me whose sacrifice, determination, and resilience makes my presence here today even possible. Ellen, you and I remember the exuberance with which her predecessors as vice presidential candidates, Geraldine Ferraro and Sarah Palin, were also greeted. This feels different. Having a woman of color on the ticket at a time when African-American female voters may well tip the balance of this election could be a prescription for success. For the first time, a running mate may actually affect an election. And dare I say it? No one could ever ask Kamala Harris to smile more. Hers is a megawatt beacon. Maybe that gets us beyond at least one pigeonhole? Such interesting timing. In this year of the suffrage centennial, women's votes and a woman's presence on the ticket are suddenly potential power sources. Is that the legacy of the 19th Amendment? It's certainly a legacy, despite the fact that it took a century to get here. Remember some of the other predictions about what might happen when women got the right to vote? Susan Ware. There was a sense, because nobody knew exactly what would happen, that they might try to abolish war or um, institute prohibition, you know, get rid of, get rid of liquor, um, end prostitution, vote out machine politics, uh, and a whole range of kind of housekeeping, house cleaning, you know, let's clean up the state. And, the, and this is what women are going to bring to it. And so I think there was a sense which was also encouraged by the suffragists that they would bring something different and special to public life. 
and that was one reason for, in fact, enfranchising them. Um, and so these were some of the ways that uh, people thought this influence might play out. Um, and sometimes it did, and sometimes it didn't. So it turned out that women were not the moral arbiters of the world once they got the right to vote. What a surprise. Uh, <laughs> no, they weren't. Uh, we should have known that. And again, I think it really does hold women up to a standard of having to justify being, being allowed to vote. And we don't ask that of other groups. Susan Ware takes the long view, suggesting that the impact of the suffragists be viewed like the carefully named trees in her New Hampshire forest. Over time, after they've had a chance to grow and adapt to the larger landscape. One of the things I've learned so much studying suffrage history and being part of these discussions around the centennial is just the importance of placing the suffrage milestone in the larger continuum of women's political activism. And to see they're not always straight lines or direct, you know, from go from here to here, the, the issues are different. But it's, I just feel like we're all part of something larger. For several other historians who've helped us tell the story, the battle for the ballot is a microcosm that serves as a history lesson. Paula Giddings. If you understand the women's suffrage movement in all of its complexity, you understand this country. Anne Gordon looks at the underpinnings of the transformation of rights. I think the 19th Amendment is worth celebrating despite its weaknesses because there was a huge fundamental change in the assumptions about who could have a voice in government in this country. Our government recognized that it was unfair, illogical, and undemocratic to exclude 51% of the population from the decisions about how we're governed. It had been a hypocrisy that had been in our country since its founding, and that's, I don't want to have grown up in a world where my mother and I couldn't vote. Ellen Du Bois celebrates the suffragists themselves. When you look at what, what they did, what do you come away with? What's your feeling about these women? I come away with their incredible persistence. It was a persistence when you look at the sex as a whole that lasted from generation to generation. And at many steps along the way, even at the very end, it's not hard to imagine that they could have missed getting full ratification in 1920, and then it could have been many decades before another chance came up. It's as if they knew we were waiting for them. Lynn, I remember when we were at Seneca Falls, and you asked me whether I thought those women would have started this campaign for suffrage if they'd known how long it would take. And I said, yes, I'm thinking about that now. Such a long march. As Carrie Chapman Catt wrote, it was, quote, a continuous, seemingly endless chain of activity. Young suffragists who helped forge the last links of that chain were not born when it began. Old suffragists who forged the first links 
were dead when it ended, unquote. In fact, only one woman from the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention, Charlotte Woodward, was alive to vote in 1920. But how about this? When the 19th was passed, it was called the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. I celebrate their persistence. It keeps me going even today. I think about how that incredible struggle never ended. We made huge but incomplete progress with the 19th Amendment. It remains a model of how circuitous the path to justice is. Stacey Abrams agrees about the importance of this milestone. She compares the significance of the 19th, however incomplete, to her 2018 race for governorship, a race tainted with voter suppression. She did not win, but hundreds of thousands of people of color came to vote. I do not believe that we have to reject success because it is not whole. And so I celebrate the 19th Amendment. I celebrate the victory of those 17 million women because that victory helped create the victory for the work that was done in 1965. And it created the victory that happened in 2018. And it will create the victory that happens in 2020. And by God, it will create the first woman president. That victory cannot be diminished because it was not complete. It was just the beginning of the streak of victories that we have to continue to fight. How do you listen to her, to all these women, and the echo of their voices over nearly two centuries and not run out to register and to vote? That's my big takeaway from the suffrage story, Ellen. How do you learn what these women went through to get us the right to vote and then sit out an election, any election? It's like that question we ask Debbie Walsh. I'm gonna role play and say, you know, I'm, I'm a young person and I'm not gonna vote. Voting doesn't matter. What do you say to me directly? What are you, crazy? <laughs> No, that's not what I would say. Um, no, I mean, I would say, I would say that if one of the reasons that people in power, for instance, don't take young people seriously is because they don't vote at the rate comparable to who they are and their numbers. And so they can be ignored because because elected officials aren't afraid of them because they don't vote. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I know y'all can fix it faster, but I know y'all won't try. Nobody care about us. And that's why I don't vote. Voting for Obama. That attitude from the hip-hop artist Yellow Pain threw Stacey Abrams for a loop when she first heard it. Oh no, another disaffected young person. But she smiled with relief when his song, My Vote Don't Count, took a turn as he handed the mic to his cousin, congressional candidate Desiree Timms. So every time you sit out an election, every time you don't show up because you think it doesn't matter, someone else is happy that you didn't show up so they can make that decision for you. Vote. In a democracy, your power as a citizen to shape your future is driven by your ability to vote. It is the only common power that stretches across a citizen, regardless of gender, 
regardless of race, regardless of national origin. And so, yes, this is all about power. And I believe that it's time to share the power or get out of the way. Shall we say it again? Vote, vote, vote. Well, vote once anyway. Do it with respect for those who fought the battle for the ballot and with respect for those still struggling. Do it because the right to vote is a huge part of the right of every woman to full citizenship and equality. Lynn, it has been such a joy and so enlightening to hear from these women and tell these stories. What a journey we've been privileged to take. Plus one, Ellen, especially with you. Thank you to our foremothers. Thank you to our experts. Special thanks to our producer, Maddie Foley, and the whole team at Wonder Media. And thanks to all of our listeners. So one more time, we look forward to the day when we can say about every female citizen in every single election, she votes. She Votes is produced by Maddie Foley, Edie Allard, and the team at Wonder Media Network. To learn more about our battle for the ballot, you can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media, on Instagram at WMN.media, or on our website, SheVotesPodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We want to tell you about a new podcast called The Cut from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, an ensemble of voices from New York Magazine's The Cut, led by host Avery Truffleman, engage in the conversations that matter most in our current moment. From a conversation with Ladarius from the Netflix show Cheer about what optimism means in 2020, to examining nature and our relationship to it, Tune in to The Cut each week for intimate, probing looks at the world around us. The first episode of The Cut is live now. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.